Would you say the Bible is more like a novel or a collection of short stories? You may not have considered this question, but your answer is incredibly important for you to understand in determining if God is the ultimate author of the Bible and how you're going to respond to it. Hi, I'm Yvonne Penn from Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. And we're going to answer these questions about the Bible in our lesson today entitled, The Bible, Novel or Short Story, and Why It Matters Tremendously, Now and Forever. This lesson is a little longer and more complex than some because it covers a grouping of topics that are related and foundational to your understanding of the Bible. When I first did it, um, I did it in front of my Sunday school class. I had it quite a bit shorter because I took out several sections, but I realized this is an incredibly important topic and I put the things back into it, but wanted to let you know from the start, it is a little bit longer and more complex than some, but I think it is definitely worth it. It's important not only for what you learn, but how you respond to what I'm teaching you in this. On the one hand, you see, if we believe the Bible is just the creation of human authors. Though we feel it might have some inspiring and morally valid advice, it's our choice as a fellow human to pick and choose what we follow. If, on the other hand, we truly believe the Bible is written by God himself, our creator and the one to whom we will one day give account, above all else, we should work to understand and obey the Bible. Now, to convince you that the Bible is indeed the very words of God given to us for our eternal salvation and how to live our earthly lives is the purpose of this lesson. And I pray that you really will pay close attention to it and that we will commit ourselves to getting to know the Bible and live in ways more pleasing to our Lord because of it. Now, to begin with, let's talk about our presuppositions, because they do matter. We don't approach anything we read without presuppositions, whether it's the Bible or anything else. Now, we're going to look at the results of looking at the Bible from two propositional standpoints. One, that the Bible is like a novel in that it's a book, one book by one author, and the second presupposition that it's like a collection of short stories written by a group of authors. Let's look more closely, first of all, at the dangers of looking at what I call the short story collection view of the Bible. Now, instead of assuming that the Bible is just one book, written by God, the short story view assumes it's a collection of writings written solely by human authors. This view assumes that we do not know for certain who the authors of the books of the Bible were or precisely when they were written or collected. This is the current presupposition of many biblical scholars, popular writers, and all the television programs that you see about the Bible today. The programs that talk about, for example, the quote-unquote real Jesus, or present various theories about what really happened in the Bible. At their base, each of these views assume the Bible is a collection of books written by human authors. Now, let me just say up front, I totally disagree with that, but that is the assumption. Now, where did this view of the Bible as a collection of short stories, though they may not call it that, come from? 
Now, though this view is currently what predominates in our intellectual world today, it's really fairly re a fairly recent development in how the church has always viewed the Bible. I would highly recommend a really excellent book on this. It's entitled God's Word Alone, the Authority of Scripture by Matthew Barnett. Now, in it, he has a very detailed and scholarly history of this view of the Bible and how it changed. And it's, it's just a really good book. But briefly, the author relates how through most of biblical and human history, including the history of the Christian church through the Reformation, the Bible was viewed as the inerrant word of God, and human reason, listen to this carefully, was subject to it. He then talks about the rise of the importance of human reason via the Enlightenment and through postmodern philosophy, and that gradually the view of the Bible as the inerrant Word of God shifted to seeing the Bible as a scattered collection of religious writings that human reason needed to step in and determine what was useful or true. Now, here's how this worked out in practice in the scholarly world, and this then filtered down into popular culture. In contrast to the view that was held for over 3,000 years that Moses was the author of the Torah, this group of scholars came up with what was called the Documentary Hypotheses. And this is how Wikipedia describes it. The Documentary Hypotheses is one of the models used by biblical scholars to explain the origins and compositions of the Torah, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. A version of the documentary hypotheses, frequently identified with the German scholar Julius Wellenhausen, was almost universally accepted for most of the 20th century. And this is what, it, what, they, what he believed and what he said. He said that the Pentateuch was a compilation of four originally independent documents. My, my comment here, parentheses, not that one person, Moses, wrote them as guided by God, but no, 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 he said that there were actually four independent documents, the J document or the Yahweh document, the E document or the Eloist document, the D document, the Deuteronomist document, and the P document, which um, was also known as the priestly one. Now, the first of these, J, was dated to around 950 BC, um, the E somewhat later, the D later than that, and then finally the P one, which was the last one he dated in the time of Ezra, which is actually when the last of the Old Testament was written. Now, he said also that these sources would have been joined together at various points by a series of editors or what they called redactors. Now, this sounds so scholarly, and one assumes that these very learned individuals who put it together know what they're talking about, but on close examination, you need to start asking, well, who actually wrote each of them? And what independent manuscript proof do we have of them? And when did they actually write? And what do we know about them or the process of how we put they were put together? And the answer is, there is absolutely no, zero, none, nada, documentary support for any of this theory. There's no textual proof, no historical accounts of any of the supposed individuals who redacted, again, it just simply means to edit them. 
it they just come up with well this passage kind of sounds like this and this one like that so instead of Moses writing them we it had to be this other individual and it's quite honestly kind of goofy it just doesn't make sense unless you have a presupposition that God could not have used one person to write all of this material, that it the Bible couldn't have had a supernatural authorship. And so if you start out with an anti-supernaturalist view, you have to come up with a way to justify it, and basically that is what the documentary hypothesis is. Now, it's been thoroughly discredited in academic circles because there is no proof, no documentation of it. But the results of this and similar theories have been incredibly destructive. Even if people aren't consciously aware of how we treat the Bible because of them. And here's how it works. If you don't know for certain the identity of the authors of the books, when they were written, or when they were finally compiled into the form that you have today, which are all just totally false assumptions, the assumed conclusion is that the authors, editors, and compilers were just human. And therefore the Bible is merely a book about God, not necessarily from or by God. It then follows, according to this view, that the teachings of the Bible are useful if they speak to human need, but they can be ignored if they appear outdated or offensive. It also follows in this view that there might be spiritually useful material in the biblical books, but the books are also filled with errors and human opinion. Human reason and scholarship are then needed to make the distinctions between truth and error. The Bible becomes a book where the reader decides what's true instead of discovering what God says is true. As it's sometimes summarized, this view believes the Bible might contain the words of God, but overall it is not the word of God. Now, without thinking, approaching the Bible in this way is how most people read it today. This view has permeated more than scholarly circles and television specials about what really happened in the Bible or who is the real Jesus. Now, this this gets kind of personal, and I know it did for me when I was studying this, because if you don't think it applies to you, think back to the last time you were in a Bible study, and someone, maybe it was you, I know I've been guilty of it, said, well, what do you think? this passage means? Or how do you feel about this? Now, I don't want to beat up on anyone. Again, I realized I've done this far more in the past than I should have. But without thinking, I put myself in the position of deciding the value of the Bible. And to correct that, I realized that I needed a correct overview of the Bible itself. And that's what I want to share with you in the rest of this study. Now, I put together a chart that is a corrected view of how we need to look at the Bible. And the way I summarized it is I realized one day, 
the that the way many people were looking at the Bible is like it was just a collection of short stories. When you get a collection of short stories, they don't necessarily relate to each other, and they don't necessarily have one viewpoint. They might be all be on the same topic, but they don't even pretend to have any real consistency or continuity with each other. But a novel's really different, and I realize that is what our Bible is like. And I summarize then the conclusions of seeing the Bible as a novel with one author versus the Bible as a short story collection and I put it together on a chart and basically I have things on it such as when we look at the Bible as a novel it has one story one plot line short stories a collection it's just a lot of different things that are loosely tied together as a novel we have one author who's God in contrast to multiple human authors, editors, redactors, etc. And then it, it carries down through where we see if the novel is by one author, God, obviously then it's the Word of God. If it isn't, it's just some good, helpful advice, whatever. And it gets very important then down at the bottom of my chart where I talk about if we see the Bible as a novel written by God, God is the author, it's his word, applying it is imperative to us. We must do what it says if we want to live how our Creator wants us to live. If it's just a collection of short stories that are good advice and useful if we find them useful, application is totally optional. So how I came to this conclusion, this is what um, is actually, in some ways, maybe I should have put it at the end, but um, I wanted you to see the conclusion. And now we're going to go back and I'm going to go into four areas that I went through and studied in depth and I'm going to present to you that show us how God is the one author of the Bible and why it is more like a novel written by one author instead of just a collection of short stories written by many. Number one, we're going to look at evidence for God as one author of the entire book and the characteristics in his writing of it that allow us to say that. Second, we're going to look at the unity of the plot of the entire book that follows the traditional structure of a novel. I think you'll find that very interesting. Three, we're going to look at the use of progressive revelation in the entire book. And four, we're going to look at the voice that we hear of one author throughout the entire book. So first of all, evidence for God as a one author. No great novel was written by a committee. And the Bible claims it has one ultimate author, our triune God. Now, if you don't understand what I meant when I said triune God, I have an entire lesson series on the Trinity. Again, it's available at www.bible805.com. And if you have questions about the Trinity, please go to that. I think and the feedback I've gotten from people is it is a very clear explanation that will really help you understand it. But moving right along, the summary verse that God is the author of the Bible is of course in 2 Timothy 3.16 where the Phillips translation puts it this way, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching the faith and correcting error, for resetting the direction of a man's life and training him in good living.
Throughout the Bible, the terms the word of the Lord came to, God said, and similar terms confirm that though God used human authors, God is the ultimate author behind all the human writers giving them the content of their message. Now, an important characteristic of God that relates to his role as author of the entire Bible and is probably in many ways the best evidence for this is that God is outside of time. And being outside of time, as the author of the Bible, God could direct an event be written about hundreds of years before it would happen. Because God knows the entire plot of the whole story. And he would then, of course, know precisely when and how different things would happen. We call God's foreknowledge of the plot prophecy. And here's an illustration that I think will show you how God's view of human history is reflected in the writing of the Bible. This is an everyday illustration, but I think think it will make sense. Think about traffic helicopters. Now, here in Southern California, we drive on the freeways, and when my husband and I go down to L.A., we live in wonderful little Ventura where you don't need to deal with the freeways hardly ever. But when we go down to L.A., we rely on traffic helicopters. We have no idea what's going to happen on the 405 or the 110 as we head down there, but the pilot in the helicopter tells us everything that's going to happen. It's happening now. We just can't see it. But from his viewpoint, he's far up above all of the traffic, and he can see it. He can tell us what's happening, and we know how to prepare for it. It's the same way with God. Of course, his view is not just above L.A., but it's outside of all time and human history. And because of that, he can speak through the prophets to tell people what's ahead. Now, I have an illustration of this that I think will help you. Another chart, it's on the Bible 805 website, Bible805.com, but I'll I'll describe it to you. I have on this chart, I have a, a big bar across the top of the chart, and that's God's view of time, where he is simultaneously aware of, and he knows all that is past, present and future. But then you go down to a lower line and we're down there. The human view of time is we only truly know one point in time. Though we can imagine a past and a future, God though sees it all and he can tell us about what is going to happen. And in the Bible, then when he does that and it happens, that fulfillment of prophecy is an important evidence that God is the overall author. Let me just summarize what I've been saying. It is important to understand that because God is outside of time and able to see the past, present, and future simultaneously, he is thus able to give us true prophecy in the Bible. He tells us about what will happen in the future, and when it happens, it is one of the best evidences for the reality that God is the overall author of the Bible. To be assured that is what happened is why it's important to accurately date biblical manuscripts, which we're going to do in the series where we talk about how we got our Bibles. And um, that is coming up on our lessons. And 
be listening for that because that is very important. Now, we've seen how God is able to plan out and foretell the entire plot, but how does he structure it? This is really interesting. The second reason that we feel that God is the author of everything is the unity of the entire plot. Instead of scattered stories with a variety of plot lines, the Bible has one story, one plot line. Now to illustrate this, we're going to analyze it like any other novel. In 1863, a gentleman named Gustav Freitag, he was a German writer, he advocated a plot storyline model based on Aristotle's theory of tragedy, which divides a drama or novel into five parts. This is what they are. The exposition, the rising action, the climax, the falling action, and the denouement. Now, what I'm going to do next is I'm going to define each part from Freetag's definitions, and then I will show you how the storyline of the Bible fits that part. First of all, the exposition. Let's define it first. Exposition is the first phase. It introduces the characters, especially the main character, also known as the protagonist. It shows how the characters relate to one another, their goals and motivations, as well as their moral character. During the exposition, the protagonist learns their main goal and what is at stake. Now in the Bible, here is the exposition. Our triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the primary protagonist in the Bible. All other characters are subordinate to God, though their actions are meaningful. In the opening of Genesis, God created a world and placed the humanity created in his image into a perfect garden. He met them there and walked with them. But then comes the rising action. And the definition of rising action is that it starts with a conflict. It starts with an event that catalyzes the protagonist to take action. Rising action initiates the progression of events until the climax. In this phase, the protagonist's secondary characters understand the goal that will resolve the conflict and begin to work toward it. Smaller problems thwart their initial success, and their progress is directed primarily against these secondary obstacles. This phase demonstrates how the protagonist overcomes these obstacles. What is the rising action in the Bible? The catalyzing conflict in the biblical story is when the human couple God created for a relationship with himself turns their back on him and does the one thing he told them not to do, eat the forbidden fruit. They chose to believe the enemy of God, Satan, rather than God. The consequence is death. First temporal, physical death, and finally eternal death or separation from God. The only solution to the eternal death of his created characters is for God himself to enter the broken world and die for them. Now, the right, let me talk a little bit more about the rising action in the Bible. The rising action continues where the Old Testament storyline is the progression of events about God's preparation for the work of redemption. Through the lives of a chosen people and the messages of his prophets, God illustrates an explanation of how it will work out, of who God is and what he expects. He can no longer walk with them, so he communicates through his word, the written scriptures that become our Bible, and through events in the lives of his chosen people. 
Just as the rising action makes up the bulk of a novel, the rising action told in the Old Testament makes up the majority of our Bibles and much of human history. Like any careful storyteller, God is not in a hurry. He takes his time to tell the story and to prepare the world for the climax. The climax is defined as the turning point or highest point of the story. The protagonist makes the single big decision that defines not only the outcome of the story, but also who they are as a person. The climax in the Bible, of course, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In that, humanity sees in Jesus the perfect man, how they were designed to live and obey God. Then that perfect man, Jesus, by an act of his free will, takes his life and offers it in the place of his creation as a sacrifice for their sins. God the Father accepts the sacrifice, and the enemy, Satan, and death are defeated. Then comes the falling action. The falling action is defined in this way. The climax is not the ending, but it determines the ending. The falling action phase consists of events that lead to the ending. Depending on the complexity of the story, there are often multiple secondary plot lines yet to be worked out. And the falling action in the Bible comes after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus back to heaven. His disciples are charged with the task of sharing the message of salvation with the world. The secondary plot lines involve the establishment of the church and how his disciples are to live out the work of reconciling the world to God that is now possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament tells the story of the falling action not only of the characters when it was first written, but it invites us to join in and become part of that story. And finally, we have the denouement. The denouement is the phase in which the protagonist and antagonist have solved their problems, and either the protagonist or antagonist wins the conflict. The conflict officially ends. Some stories show what happens to the characters after the conflict ends, or they show what happens to the characters in the future. The denouement in the Bible is Christ's return to earth, the casting of Satan into the lake of fire, and the creation of the new heaven and new earth, where God once again physically, tangibly walks with his people forever. Paradise lost has become paradise regained. C.S. Lewis' description of the denouement at the end of the last battle can describe our coming denouement of human history also, where he says, The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning, the beginning of the real story. All their life and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. In summary of this five-part structure, I found the way the Bible fits the structure of the novel to be very exciting when I first discovered it, and I hope you do too. And I trust it was a good illustration to show that the Bible is one complete, 
organic story, the greatest of novels written by one divine author. It's not a scattered collection of short stories written by faceless writers who could have never collaborated independently to produce this one storyline over the centuries that the Bible was written. Now next I'm going to share some additional characteristics of the Bible that confirm the one author, the one unified structure of it. The next one is progressive revelation. Aristotle said the events of the plot must causally relate to one another as either as being either necessary or probable. Now if the Bible's like a novel with one author, the scattered parts of it should relate to each other. That's not necessary if it's a collection of short stories. A short story collection only needs to be loosely related to the topic. The individual stories can have a variety of authors with different viewpoints. We don't expect them to agree with each other, and there's no true narrative arc to the entire collection. However, in a novel, the key topics and plot points of the book need to relate to each other. Now here is an example of it. This is a specific example of progressive revelation in the Bible. One continu- and there are many, but this is just one of them. One continuing plot line in the Bible is that a sinless sacrifice was needed to pay for humanity's rebellion against their creator. We don't know why this is. We don't know why a sacrifice was required. But this is simply a basic law of creation. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis describes the necessary death of Aslan, the Christ figure, as one of the deep laws before time began. In the same way, why a sinless sacrifice was required to pay for our sins is something the Bible doesn't tell us. It's simply an underlying law of divine reality and one carried throughout the Bible. We see it early in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned. God covered them with animal skins, obviously from the sacrifice of a sinless animal. When Abel made his offering that was pleasing to God, It was an animal sacrifice. Job offered animal sacrifices. So did Abraham, all prior to the Levitical laws. Later, the sacrifices and their type, purpose, and procedure were clarified in the Levitical laws after the Exodus and became tied to the idea of a coming Messiah in Isaiah and other prophetic writings until Jesus was the final sacrifice. This plot line moved along through the Old Testament and that's why it was extraordinarily meaningful when John the Baptist saw Jesus and announced, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Finally, all the previous teaching about sacrifices were fulfilled with Jesus' death on the cross. The later New Testament writers expand on and clarify the meaning of his death until in the final book of Revelation, John has a vision of Jesus as both lion and lamb. The plot line of a needed sacrifice for sin of an innocent winds through the entire Bible, though the centuries through the centuries and voices of many, but its truth is progressively revealed by the one author, God 
who is behind all of it. Jesus was the final sacrifice. This plot line moved along through the Old Testament, and that's why it was extraordinarily meaningful when John the Baptist saw Jesus and announced, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Finally, all the previous teaching about sacrifices were fulfilled with Jesus' death on the cross. The later New Testament writers expand on and clarify the meaning of his death until in the final book of Revelation, John has a vision of Jesus as both lion and lamb. The plot line of a needed sacrifice for sin of an innocent winds through the entire Bible, through the centuries and the voices of many, but its truth progressively is revealed by the one author, God. Jesus himself commented on progressive revelation in his life and ministry when he said in John 5.39, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And with and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus begins this discussion of how the Old Testament related to his life, but other New Testament authors also refer to and confirm progressive revelation of Old Testament teaching being further, further revealed or fulfilled in the New Testament. The Old Testament is quoted over 200 times in the New Testament, with writer after writer quoting an Old Testament passage, then showing how it was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. One uh, one of the things that I recommend that you do, I did this myself a few years ago, and it was so useful, is to read the book of Matthew. Throughout the entire book, he will talk about something Jesus did, and then he will say, this was to fulfill, and then he quotes an Old Testament passage. And you can see, if you, if you do that, just be really conscious of it, and I, I marked it each time, you can really see how the New Testament is a continuation of of the story that God started in the Old Testament. The next characteristic is the voice of the one author in the entire book. Now, I realize that this is a little bit subjective, but it's something that has been important to me, and I think it's a really valid point. Jesus said his sheep recognize his voice. And we, when we read the canonical books of the Bible, these are the ones that we were put in our Bible, and I'm going to be having a lesson. Uh, please stay tuned, literally, for where I talk about how we got all of those books in the series on how we got our Bible. But when we read these, we hear, I think we hear very clearly, one voice. But if we read the books of the Apocrypha or the Gnostic Gospels, it's obviously... I think, a different voice. I'm going to give you one example. This is from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. It's very different than the Gospels that we have in our Bible. And some people in the uh, contemporary media say, oh, they just, you know, the church left it out and it should have been in there and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, outside of the facts that documentary evidence doesn't support it and all kinds of other things, I think you just hear a very different voice. Now, I'm going to read to you two examples, and it doesn't matter the translation or any of that. I think it will come through. But I'm going to read you a passage from the Gospel of John, 
And then I'm going to read you a passage from the Gospel of Thomas. The setting is the Last Supper when Jesus was with his disciples. And this is from the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then, jumping down a little later in the, in the chapter, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken with, spoken while I was still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Okay, that is from the Gospel of John in the New Testament in our Bibles. Now, this is from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, and it is um, theoretically in the same setting. And here's what it said. These are the secret sayings that the living Jesus spoke and Didymus Judas Thomas recorded. And he said, Whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. And Jesus said, Those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. When they find, they will be disturbed. When they are disturbed, they will marvel, and they will reign over all. After they have reigned, they will rest. Jesus said, If your leaders say to you, Look, the Father's kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, It is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the Father's kingdom is within you and is outside you. When you know yourselves, then you will be known, and you will understand that you are children of the living Father. But if you do not know yourselves, then you will live in poverty, and you are and you are the poverty. Jesus said, Lucky is the lion the human will eat, so that lion becomes human, and fall is the human that the lion will eat, and the lion still will become human. I trust you could tell from me reading these two passages simply how different voices spoke them. One, I truly believe, is the voice of our Lord, and the other, I don't actually know whose voice it is, but they are very different. One is clear, the Gospel of John is very clear, the other one is confusing and kind of garbled, and I didn't jump around or anything like that. That's that's how the text reads. Satan's communication, though, is often like that. It stirs us up, it's confusing, it's upsetting, it's we, we don't know quite what to make of it. But when you know your Bible well, if someone says, oh, the Bible teaches this, or the Bible says this or that, even though you may not be able to immediately recall a chapter and verse, oftentimes you will know that that particular thing that they said is not from the Lord. Uh, the analogy that is used so often is you don't 
learn to identify counterfeit uh, right counterfeit currency by studying all the different kinds of, of counterfeit currency you study the real thing and it's the same with the Bible when you read it you know it you make it part of your life you will know when someone brings up something that isn't in it to review and summarize, the Bible is not a collection of isolated stories with anonymous authors written who knows when, but the greatest novel, the greatest story ever written by God, the one author inspiring the human authors to write the Bible to show his creation, his ways, what went wrong in our world, and what Jesus did and will do to set all things right. Now some suggested applications. Though there are many excellent study Bibles, and they have a place when we need background, when we want to know uh, commentary, all that kind of thing, but it's really easy to get distracted by the notes and lose all sense of the text itself. I I love the Life Application Bible, but some pages on it, there's like little teeny weeny bit of Bible and then all sorts of commentary. I recommend it. I think it's a great book. But when I am personally just reading through the Bible, I like to get a plain text Bible or one that has very minimal notes. Even better is a Bible like this one here. This is out of the message translation that I'm showing people on the screen, but where it's organized in paragraphs. Um, even the verse numbers can be distracting, and when you want to get a sense of the Bible as the, as the entire story, it really helps to read something that is just all text. Now, what translation? I mentioned the message. Some people, oh no, that's terrible and all that. I find it quite helpful when when I really want to get the entire story and when I um, when I want a passage to really hit me in the face with what application should be because you can't hide behind ancient meanings of the word of words in the message but but that doesn't matter as to the translations again I will be talking about how we got the different ones the pros and cons of different ones um, when we go through the series on how we got our Bible but Regardless, the best translation is the one you will read or listen to. You can listen to your Bible. That's just fine. And it, really, that, that's what's most important. Listen or read whatever translation. It's your choice. But just like Nike says, just do it. Now, one last thought when we look at the Bible as a novel. All novels come to an end. And so does the story of salvation in the Bible, and so too will our world. And though the ending of the Bible does promise a potentially happily ever after, each person must make the decision to trust that the message of the Bible is true, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and for that to be true for them. God did not write the Bible to entertain us, but to save us, or as J.I. Packer put it, the scriptures are a lifeline God throws us in order to ensure he and we stay connected while the rescue is in process. My prayer is that you daily grab a hold of the Bible as if your life depended on it, because it does, for your life today, your destiny now and forever. That's all for now. 
please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. If this teaching has been beneficial to you, please consider supporting it with your prayers and gifts. For how to do that, go to www.bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.